Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. We are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for another special guest episode today. This will be the fourth episode in a series where I converse with classicists about either books or articles that they have published, their current research interests, or just unique classes and topics that they are teaching and exploring further. In today's special episode, I am joined by Dr. Barry Strauss, a professor of history and classics at Cornell University, where he teaches courses on the history of ancient Greece and Rome, war and peace in the ancient world, history of battle, introduction to military history, and specialized topics in the ancient world. Dr. Strauss is a widely acclaimed military and naval historian who has spent years researching and studying the leaders of the ancient world and has written and spoken widely of their mistakes and successes. As such, he is a recognized authority on the subject of leadership and the lessons that can be learned from the experiences of the greatest political and military leaders of the ancient world, including Caesar, Hannibal, and Alexander, among many others. Some of the numerous books that he has authored include The Battle of Salamis, The Trojan War, The Spartacus War, Masters of Command, The Death of Caesar, and his newest book, The Ten Caesars. Dr. Strauss has also appeared in more than a dozen television documentaries and radio programs, such as NPR and BBC, and has published op-ed pieces in several popular media outlets, including the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and the Wall Street Journal. Recently, he has upped his public history to a new level by creating an ancient history podcast called Antiquitas. So it's with great pleasure today that Dr. Strauss came on to THOAG, and in the lively conversation that followed, we discussed his new book, The Ten Caesars, his podcast, Antiquitas, the importance of public history, and leadership lessons from the ancient world. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Barry Strauss. All right, so today I am joined by Dr. Barry Strauss. He's a classicist and military and naval historian. He's recently wrote a book called The Ten Caesars, and he has a podcast called Antiquitas that I'm a huge fan of, and I've been a huge fan of his work. Actually, I've discovered your book on the Battle of Salamis like over a decade ago, so I've been a big fan since then. So it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you today, so welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Ryan. So I always like to start out when talking to classicists to ask them about their journey to classics and ancient history. Because it's always fascinating to hear everyone's story. So, how did you come to classics, and what was it that attracted you to ancient Rome and well, the ancient world in general? Well, you know, back in my day, some people became hippies. <laughs> I decided to study ancient Greek. It was way out there. I loved languages. I had studied some languages in high school, and I was really attracted to ancient Greek because it was different. It was difficult. And I'd read some Thucydides. This was during the time of the Vietnam War. I read some Thucydides and I thought, wow, it's as if he's talking about what's going on today. So I really wanted to be able to read it in the original. And I started taking a class and got hooked. Thucydides was actually the uh, first Greek historian that I read too. Oh, yes? Yeah, he was the first one that I uh, came across and I got hooked. Although I am more of a fan of Herodotus now, but Thucydides was the first person that I got into as well. Yeah, maybe he's the entry drug. We move on to Herodotus afterwards. <laughs> so you went to Yale, right? You got your PhD at Yale. Is that correct? I got my PhD at Yale, yes. And you worked with, if I remember correctly, Donald Kagan, right? I did, yes. 
actually that's how I got into Greek history. I so I grew up from a non-typical way of classics. I grew actually grew up on a farm. I didn't know about classics until I got to college. I was a first generation college student and I actually learned about Greek history when I discovered his iTunes U program. Wow. I always have a special like nostalgic connection there because I, I listened to that and I was like, oh, this stuff is fascinating. And then it led me to read Thucydides and I read his work and then I kind of branched off from there. Well, the real life Don Kagan is pretty fantastic, I have to say. Yeah, I'm a big uh, fan of his work. I'm actually doing a series on the Peloponnesian War now, finally. Finally got to the Peloponnesian War, like episode 89. So I have his book there. I have Thucydides. I have a few others, quite a few. So it's uh, it's fascinating to dive into right now. But so you recently wrote, that just came out this month, actually, March of 2019, 10 Caesars. But you also a few years ago wrote a book called The Death of Caesar. Was the 10 Caesars always meant to be like a sort of continuation of that? Or was there something else that inspired you to write this book? Both and. So yes, I did <laughs> want to continue the story. I felt that I had a lot of unfinished business, obviously, particularly with Augustus. And once you have one Caesar, you want to have more. <laughs> the other thing is I got attracted to the subject in the 1970s when I saw the British TV series, I, Claudius, and then read the novels by Robert Graves. And it kind of made me fascinated about the Caesars and what they were all about. As a historian, uh, as a graduate student, I was studying the Roman Empire, the Roman economy, Roman society, but we didn't pay very much attention to the personalities of the rulers. Uh, but that was always in the back of my mind as something to look at. I love I, Claudius. I actually haven't read the books. It makes me a terrible, terrible person who's interested in ancient historian. But I've watched the films like a half dozen times. I've read Robert Graves' myths his stuff on myths quite a few times, though. I guess I really should go back and read I, Claudius. Yeah, something to look forward to. I'm sure you've gotten this question quite a few, but 10 emperors that you selected, Augustus, Tiberius, Nero, Vespasian, Trajan, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, Septimius Severus, Diocletian, and Constantine. Why did you choose just 10? And what was the criteria that you used in selecting those 10? Because, you know, there's like 60 or so between Augustus and Constantine. So surely it was like a tough decision. And there were some that did make the list that you wish could have. Absolutely. So I started, of course, with Suetonius and 12 Caesars. And I thought, you know, we don't have a whole lot of top 12 lists nowadays. The number 12 doesn't have the same resonance for us as it did for the Romans. So it seemed pretty much a natural to have 10 Caesars rather than 12 Caesars. And then to your very good question, why the ones that I chose? Well, half of them chose me. It would have been impossible to write this book without including Augustus, Hadrian, and Constantine, or Marcus Aurelius. And when I did an informal survey of people who were far from expert in classics, I found that the one Roman emperor that everybody had heard of was Nero. So that gave me half of them. And for the others, I tried to choose the ones who I thought were the most important, who had been the most successful and who had the greatest impact on the empire. Tiberius, I think, is a somewhat underrated emperor and yet a really crucial one because he turned the empire from a road of expansion to a road of stasis on the borders. He was the great continuator. Until Tiberius had his reign, it wasn't really clear whether Augustus's principate was going to survive or not. Vespasian is fascinating to me because he's really the first commoner as 
emperor. And he shows that you can take the emperor out of the Roman nobility and you can still have a successful emperor. And he's just quite an extraordinary person in his ability to take his somewhat ordinary background and turn it into a selling point. Trajan is the emperor who the Romans thought was the best of the emperors. Maybe not so immediately apparent to us that he's the best of the emperors, but I wanted to understand why the Romans thought that. He was also a difficult one to research, so he was a challenge and a bit of detective work. Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, I said, were givens. Septimius Severus, you know, his dynasty was tremendously important. After all, it is his son who gives the Roman citizenship to all the free members of the empire. He's also the first African emperor, and he marries a Syrian woman. So he shows just how varied the backgrounds and origins of the emperors were. And he plays a very important role in the militarization of the empire. Gibbon actually thought that he, more than anyone else, set the empire on the road to decline and fall. Diocletian, kind of irresistible in that he was so bad and also so important. I mean, he is the person who stabilizes the empire after the half century of crisis and who basically begins what becomes the trend for the rest of the empire, which is to have more than one emperor, to have two men, and in his case, in some sense, four men governing the empire just because its problems were so great and so complicated. So that's how I got my 10. You know, the people ask me, is there anyone who you had to leave on the cutting room floor? And the answer is yes, Aurelian. It was really hard not to have Aurelian in there. And I struggled a bit as to whether to bring Aurelian in there or not. In the end, he didn't make it, but I feel I'll come back to him in some way or another. When I was reading your book, and I've read it all now, finally, very fascinating. And we'll talk more about the methodology later. But I noticed that you didn't cover all emperors, obviously. So the ones that you did cover, at least you kind of put backstory in because like they were alive during the time of the previous emperor. So you were able to connect the threads that way. And I thought that that was immense value added to the book where you, especially if this is like a I don't want to necessarily say an introduction, but it could be, or someone who isn't necessarily well-versed into the imperial period, they could read it from beginning to end and still not have huge patches. So I was wondering if that influenced the way that you picked the emperors, that they still had that semi-kind of connection. Like Septimius Severus was a child when Marcus Aurelius or Commodus were like emperors. So you, you could kind of bring it in and talk about their rise during the previous emperor that you covered. If that factored in, maybe it didn't. Maybe it's something I just noticed. <laughs> no, I, I did want there to be a narrative thread that connected the emperor. So that was, that was an important part of what I was doing. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm glad that it worked for you. I definitely feel like, because, you know, if you're picking just different emperors, you can kind of miss some. I mean, obviously, since you went from Septimius Severus to Diocletian and couldn't have Aurelius in there in the middle, there's kind of that little bit of gap, but you did fill it in with the general information. So that's good for the readers. Good. The other thing, why did you choose Constantine? I mean, I noticed that there was a thread of like you would incorporate it in some of the emperors. You were talking about the history of Christianity quite a bit. So obviously, Constantine is an important figure, but like, why not Theodosius II or something if that was the thread that you were going? with? Well, because I think Constantine, if Augustus is the founder of the empire, Constantine is the re-founder of the empire. There are few decisions in all of Roman history that are more momentous than Christianizing the empire, and Constantine is the turning point. 
Furthermore, he founds Constantinople, which becomes the greatest city in Europe. It's one of the most influential cities in the history of the world. So that also makes him such a key figure. And like many of the earlier emperors, though, he was every inch a Roman. He was a conqueror. He was a soldier. I think in some ways he was one of the greatest of the soldier emperors, if not the greatest. So in some ways, it seems to me he and Augustus are real bookends for the empire. Yeah, I get that. So it'd be safe to say then that the grand story that you're trying to tell was the founding and the refounding from the pagan turning to a Christian. That was kind of the theme that I kind of got out of it as I was reading it. So that's kind of your intent there? It's one of the grand stories. I mean, that's certainly one of the themes of the book. It's not the only theme of the book, but it's certainly one of them. And I think it sets the narrative. Also, by starting with Augustus and ending with Constantine, it allows Hadrian to be the middle point. And He's chronologically about in the middle between the two of them, but also I think thematically he's about in the middle between the two of them because Hadrian starts looking eastward. Hadrian starts making the empire a Greco-Roman empire. So I think that's also one of the things that made me, that attracted me to the schema of Augustus to Constantine. The shift from west to east. Yes, the shift from west to east, absolutely. So in constructing these lives, and I I like that you did the biography sort of because it gets past the purely military political history that a lot of people traditionally learn when you dive into the lives of the emperors. Right. So in constructing these lives, what was your methodological approach? What were the sources that you predominantly used? How did you go about doing them? Obviously, Suetonius is a huge one. Right. And then we have Dio Cassius. And right. I like how you had short, concise sections for each emperor. And you can usually find the entire point of that section in like the first few sentences. And I, I feel like for a general people who had no idea what was going on, that's very helpful. So like, I guess what I'm saying is, is this the style of writing that you've learned from doing like popular public history? Or have you always written like this? In my doing the podcast, in my experience, I've gotten a lot better at writing since I'm like writing for popular ears and like doing short and compact sentences and used to be quite verbose early on. And I, one of the biggest complaints was very Ciceronian in my sentence structures. They're not simplistic by any means, but I, I like the very direct right. way that you have approached this. And it's very easy for people to follow. I was able to read the book very, very quickly and digest the information very well. Well, thank you. You know, I try to write for a general audience. That certainly is my intent in writing the book. I think it has some things that might be of interest to scholars as well. But I think in writing for a general audience, you have to try to put yourself in their position. One of the things that I try to do when I write a book like this is I look at some books on subjects about which I know nothing and say, well, how would I approach a subject about which I knew nothing? What if I wanted to read about the engine and the atmosphere? Or what if I wanted to read about, well, I'll stay with engineering, but the latest jet plane technology? How would I begin? You know, what would I want an author to say to me? What would I want to find in that book? And so then I try to say, okay, now I want to put my reader in that position with my subject, which I know so well, but the reader doesn't necessarily know at all. So that's one of the things that I did. You asked about the sources. So for each of these emperors, I would look up what the key primary sources 
are, I was lucky enough to be able to work with some graduate students together on this. And we put together bibliographies and I would look at those sources and then I would look at the scholarship on the sources. Uh, for some of the emperors, the sources are very rich and it's a long scholarly tradition and the sources are relatively contemporary. For other ones, especially when you get later, often you have no ancient biography, as in the case of Trajan. Or the ones that you have are very problematic, as in the case of Hadrian. So there you had to, of course, look very carefully at the scholarship. Uh, you'd always have to look at the scholarship, but in some it was more of a challenge than others. And as much as possible, I looked at archaeological evidence for each of these emperors. And wherever I could, wherever I was lucky enough, I would visit archaeological sites. I mean, going to Hadrian's Wall was one of the real high points of doing research of this book, for instance. So this is some of the basic methodological things I did. So you mentioned like the lack of sources for certain emperors, but I mean, putting that aside, but were there any particular emperors that you enjoyed writing about the most and anyone that you had difficulty with? It might not necessarily be because of the lack of the sources, but just putting the narrative together that you constructed. I enjoyed them all. I mean, I think I found Vespasian and Hadrian in some ways to be the most interesting and the most fun. I mean, Hadrian is a very complicated character, and he's a combination of light and shadow, of good and bad. So that made it really quite interesting. And he himself was obviously extraordinarily intelligent and literate, which also made it fun. Vespasian, I think, just turned out to be a much more interesting character than I had expected. There's a lot more there than I had thought. Finding about his mistress, Kainis, was really quite fascinating. And that added a dimension that I didn't expect to find there. Really, really interesting character. I think in some ways Tiberius is the most difficult. I think most historians who study Tiberius find him challenging. He's a bit of a sphinx. He wasn't a nice guy. He wasn't much beloved by people. Tacitus, who's so important as a source, really looks down on him. He's over the top in the way that he looks down on him. So we're constantly trying to deal with that. We need Tacitus in studying Tiberius, but we also have to worry about Tacitus in studying Tiberius. So those are some of the interesting ones. Um, Septimius Severus is not easy, and neither for that matter is Diocletian. They're difficult to, they're difficult to construct. So you're talking about, was it Kynes? Is that who you mentioned earlier? Yes. I also recently read your article in Time Magazine that you wrote on women in ancient Rome didn't have equal rights. They still changed history. And I thought that was well written. Thank and you. I particularly liked how, I don't know if it was intended, but you always had certain sections that always talked about the imperial women for each emperor that you talked about. And yes. you yes. really stressed the importance of that in their life, which is another thing that you don't typically hear in most <laughs> books that I've read about them. Right. I mean, there are some, but I'm typically, was that conceded effort from the very beginning as that something that came about or is that you learn more about the stories and you're like, oh, I need to incorporate these. And then you decided to do it for every emperor. How'd that come about? No, it was, it was there from the beginning, from the very beginning of this project. I wanted it to be an equal partnership between the men and the women. I mean, I knew that imperial women were tremendously important. And as I researched the book, I only discovered that they were even more important than I had thought. I mean, I was also very aware of the fact that I was focusing on elite women by and large, like you occasionally get one like Kindness who had been a slave, but mostly I was looking at elite women. I was very conscious of the fact that there's a whole world out there of non-elite women in the Roman Empire as well. Occasionally they would come through as in the case of Plotina, the wife of 
Trajan and the patron of Hadrian who owned brickworks and the manager of her brickworks is a woman, which I thought was really absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting things about the story, especially from having spent a lot of my career and looking at earlier, less well-documented periods of history. And beginning with Thucydides, as you know, Thucydides is not exactly someone who gives equal time to women in his book. He's just the opposite. So it was great. It was fascinating to see so much more richer a story. The sources that we have, there is a lot of juicy gossip, a lot of misogynistic slander, especially Suetonius. Right. Yeah. Was it very difficult to like write these stories with them? How were you able to get through that? What other sources did you kind of bring into the mold to actually get a true picture on these imperial women? Because I guess it's kind of a lot like today. Actually, it is kind of a lot like today where the women that were powerful, they're treated a lot differently than the men, and especially Cleopatra forward. You see a lot of misogynistic slander thrown at them. So it's kind of hard to like get through that. That, to see what the true story is? Well, that's a great question. I mean, because we know that that's there, we need to account for it and discount for it. So for instance, I didn't approach Livia and say, that poisoner. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I knew that I had to take that with much, much more than a grain of salt. You can't always get to the truth, but we can do some guesswork. And the archaeological and the epigraphical evidence is also very important. I mean, in the case of Livia, for instance, we have her villa north of Rome that was only recently open to the public. And that's just fascinating to see. And because we have the, the fantastic painting, the frescoes from that villa, which are on display in the National Archaeological Museum in downtown Rome, putting that together with the villa and the information, the literary sources about how Livia created her own myth of her role in a miracle that supposedly happened that affected her career in Augustus's. We get a sense of how intelligent she was, how clever, how powerful, how important. You know, we also have details about her household, her slaves. We know people whose careers were set on the road upward because of their connection with Livia. It's really not that difficult to put together a picture of an immensely powerful, influential, intelligent political woman. So we can relatively easily go beyond the misogyny and the sources. That's good. I really like that about the book. I mean, when I first learned ancient history, I never took any classes that really covered women in the ancient world. I didn't know a whole lot about it, honestly. And then I did a, like a series of episodes for the classical Greek women, and I learned so much, and it's opened my eyes quite a bit to the social side of history. I was more into the political military history, which I'm still in. Don't get me wrong. It's fascinating. But I recently have gotten quite a bit into the social and cultural and, and especially the economic side of things. It's always good to see different perspectives. And I liked how you brought in, you talked about all the different cultural stuff that happened during that reign. There are various monuments. You mentioned a few times economic changes. And I think you mentioned climatic changes at one point, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes. I'd read Kyle Harper's recent book on um, climate in the Roman Empire. So I thought it was a really terrific book and quite fascinating. So it got me interested in this subject as well. I have to say, Ryan, I'm really impressed by your knowledge of ancient history. Good for you. I was studying for a little while, and then I realized that it was not going to be a path for me economically on the PhD trail, so I ended up commissioning into the Air Force. Luckily, I'm able to do the podcast to uh, you know, continue my passion and at least to help others learn about it as well. All right. Well, thank you for serving the country. <laughs> You're welcome. 
Speaking of podcast, I was going to talk about the podcast and public history a little bit if you want. Sure. I'd be happy to. I'm in Ohio. I've been talking to a bunch of local universities and high schools about podcasting and public history the past year since I moved here. It's just fascinating. I like when I talk to other people who do history in the public, I absolutely love that classical scholars are starting to take the podcast media more seriously, or at least right. it seems it is to me. Maybe it's anecdotal. I don't know. But you've been on, I can't remember off the top of my head, but you've done several documentaries that I've seen you on. So you've been doing public history for a while and you write popular history along with your academic history work that you've done um like i used your salamis book when i was putting my episodes together i've read your recent trojan war book i have the masters of command one but i have not quite gotten around to that yet but it's sitting there (laughs) i'm really honored by your interest in my books and i thank you so you've done an amazing job from the get-go with Antiquitas. I was terrible from the start, so <laughs> so you've done a pretty good job. What led you to get into the podcasting arena, I guess I should say? You just started in late 2018? Actually, I started in mid-2018, but it went live in late 2018. Oh, the challenge. I love teaching, and it just seemed like a natural thing to do to try to reach a broader audience. I think there's a real hunger for history out there. And I know that podcasts have become a medium that has really taken off and a lot of people get their information from podcasts. So I wanted to try it. I wanted to see if I could speak to people in that way and reach people in that way. So It really blew my mind when I started the podcast because I had no idea that anybody would actually listen to me. And it was way more popular than I ever thought it was, even though I think it was kind of bad at first because I had no idea what I was doing with technology and like I was just independent doing it myself. But you could really tell that there was a thirst for Greek history. I mean, ancient world in general. But the point when I stepped in at the beginning of 2016, there was really nothing that covered Greek history. There was, I mean, Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and there were a few other Roman podcasts. But there was really nothing. And I stepped into like the perfect storm and you could just tell. And ever since I did it, I see so many other people doing classical themed podcasts. And I really, really am glad about that and like kind of proud. Like I've gotten messages that have inspired people. So that's really cool. And I'm also, like I said earlier, really glad that scholars are starting to do that. Not only talking about the ancient world, but just talking about their current research or just talking about their methodology. I, I really am really excited about that. Good for you for being a pioneer. Oh, thanks. So what's your plan with Antiquitas? You're in season two right now. Yes. The first season was various leaders and legends of the ancient world. Is that how you phrased it? No, that's the general name. The first season was the gods of war. Oh, okay. So it was eight episodes from Achilles and Helen. The last two were Spartacus and Julius Caesar. And then I did a short season on the death of Caesar, which was based on my recent book, And they were very different because the first one was just me and getting my feet wet and learning a little bit about the medium. In the second season, three out of the four episodes, I interviewed other scholars. And that was really fun. I mean, it was a conversation, I'd say, with other scholars. And it was, that was a blast. So I really want to make that part of the format in the future as well. I did really like that format. I forget who it was that you had on, but the, when you talked about the death of Caesar, you had someone in the medical doctor. Yes. That was a fascinating conversation. So that season is over with. Do you have plans for season three? Uh, well, I'm talking to some friends at the moment about what season three is going to be, but I don't have a definite plan yet. I have a number of directions in which I'm thinking of going, but I'm not entirely sure which way I'm going to land. So we shall see. But it's much too much fun not to want to continue it. 
you're in the field, so it's not like that too much extra work on you, I guess, because you're already like teaching and researching this type of, I'm imagining. So it's just the audio and, you know, just doing it. So it's not that much, but uh, for me that it's not my day job, it's it's essentially like a second job. It's quite a bit of work, but I enjoy it so much that I, that it doesn't feel like it's work for me. Well, it's so impressive. Good for you. you. I'm very impressed. You're welcome. So a lot of your books and a lot of articles that you've written that I've seen, and essentially it's themes that you can read throughout, even in your 10 Caesars book, you talk about like leadership lessons and how it can be relatable to a modern audience, right? whether good or bad. (laughs) Yeah. And like some of the best leadership lessons I actually have learned come from bad bosses who showed me what I shouldn't do. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good philosophy to have. It is. If you take everything as a learning lesson, it's a good way. (laughs) So what got you get into that avenue where you're looking into adapting leadership lessons for the modern audience? And I guess what I should say is what are some specific leadership qualities that you've seen while writing your book that you think that we can take from those Caesars and adapt them to our lives now? Or it doesn't necessarily have to be political leaders. It could be leadership in business, leadership in just in general. Sure. That was a great question. So as far as what got me into it, well, as I said in the beginning, it was Thucydides in Vietnam that got me interested in ancient history in the first place. So to me, it's a natural to look for lessons in, in studying the past. And I agree with you that sometimes we can learn a lot from the mistakes that people made. When you look at the Roman emperors, I think that a couple of things that stands out. First of all, most of them were pretty bad. I mean, (laughs) there weren't that many good emperors. So when you said, why 10 Caesars and not 60 Caesars? Because most of the rest of them were just not that great. It's our super hard job running the Roman empires, you can imagine. Especially in the third century. (laughs) Yeah, especially in the third century. So one of the things that impresses me about them is their ability to cope with change and to make change their friend. I think one of the reasons that the Republic failed is that the leadership of the Republic didn't know what to do with change and didn't know how to make it their friend. But the Caesars did. It left a lot of the old guard very unhappy about what was happening to Rome. And of course, the Caesars were not nice guys. Rome was not a democracy. And they killed some of their enemies, which is not one of the positive lessons that we want to take from them. But certainly we can learn that there's going to be opposition to change. And you don't want to kill the people who are opposed to change, but you're going to have to deal with them. And one of the things that the Caesars did, the successful ones did, like Augustus, was they got rid of their opponents early on. They came in breathing fire and being tough. Once they'd done that, then they immediately switched gears and they tried to be kinder, gentler versions of themselves. So that's, I think, a lesson for all leaders. You have to clean house when you start out. Uh, You can't start nice. Do you think that was a lesson learned from Julius Caesar? Augustus and the rest of them might have learned from his, I don't want to say it was a mistake, but the way he gave amnesty to some of his enemies and it ultimately came back to bite him? Yeah, I think they learned from that, that amnesty wasn't going to be the way to go. Though, to be sure, Caesar had started a civil war and had killed a lot of people. So it wasn't as if he was simply Mr. Nice Guy. And maybe the lesson was you have to be very careful about how you pitch your amnesty. I mean, one of the other lessons that they learned is public relations. You cannot underestimate the importance of public relations. I mean, the empire starts with this guy who gives himself a made-up name. He's Gaius Octavius, who becomes Gaius Julius Caesar, who becomes Augustus. What does that mean? There's no name Augustus in Rome. It's as if somebody today said, call me the reverend. (laughs) And of course, he refused to call himself a king 
conveniently for him, Mark Antony had abolished the title of dictator after Julius Caesar, so he couldn't be a dictator. He calls himself Augustus, Princeps. This is a Madison Avenue kind of name. It's not a real name, but the emperors knew just how important propaganda was, and they were utter masters of it. Some of them are better at hiding it than others, I guess. They're better at stroking the egos of the people around them, not to anger them. <laughs> yes, some were better at that than others. Tiberius was not very good at that, and he was punished. He wasn't deified after he died. He hadn't played the game nice, so he got punished for that. But I think change in general, and when you see the degree, the openness of the emperors to new people, to immigrants, to slaves, to freedmen, to extending the citizenship, that's something that the old guard of the Republic would never have done willingly. And I think that the Caesars were able to do that and willing to do that is one of the key reasons for their success. It wouldn't work with the Republic. It worked with the Roman monarchy. And some people would say the price was too high. The price was too high to keep the Roman Empire. And perhaps it was, but the Caesars recognized that you had to pay a price if you wanted to keep the empire. So I think that's one of the impressive things about them. It's a lesson that we can learn today as well. The importance of change and being malleable to circumstances and not trying to fit a square into a round hole. Yeah. You want to make change your friend. And there's quite a few emperors that didn't necessarily know how to delegate very well too. And I feel like that's an important leadership lesson as well. Like Hadrian was very hands-on, was not necessarily a very good delegator. <laughs> no, he was not a good delegator. He thought he could do everything the best. If you remember when he argues with a sophist and he always wins and one of the, the sophists says, who would contradict the Lord of 30 legions? <laughs> That's definitely something that I struggled with early on when I started leadership positions was being able to like step back and allow the people around me to do what they do best. So I can definitely relate to that, but I feel like I've gotten better at that as well. So maybe I'm reading more Roman history. It's sinking yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Augustus, as you know, was the master of that, you know, his delegating things to Agrippa. So yes, I mean, I think that is one of the keys to successful leadership. And we often forget that because often successful number twos are just so, they melt into the background and we hardly even notice that they were there. And we tend to think it's just Mr. Big who does everything. But one of the things I liked about studying these emperors is that you could see the degree to which they depended on others. They used their families too, from Augustus and Livia to Constantine using his mother, St. Helena, to spread Christianity and to create, in a sense, the concept of the Holy Land. I mean, it's, it's quite fascinating. Are you suggesting that we should have nepotism? <laughs> <laughs> Not that we should have nepotism, but that people need to work with people they can trust. Yeah, exactly. So this is a fascinating conversation. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. And if anybody hasn't gotten his book yet, which you all should, uh, I'll have links to where you can get it from Simon Schuster or whatever links you can find. I'm sure it's in every single bookstore. And do you have an ebook version of it as well? Oh, yeah. It's available in Kindle and, and Nook and all various uh, e-platforms. There's also an Audible version. There's an audio book as well. Did you record the Audible with your voice? I didn't. A professional actor did, but he consulted me about pronouncing things. He was great. Awesome. Actually, that was one of the funniest things when I started podcasting was... Greek words are difficult sometimes. Yeah, I know. And especially when I've read them hundreds of times and I've never said them out loud. And 
you would read some names or cities and I'm like, well, how do you say this? I've never had to <laughs> right. speak out loud before. And I was like, ah, <laughs> it's a challenge. Well, good for you. Yeah. Really a challenge to do that. I always tell my students, I'm not going to correct your pronunciation of any ancient words unless you want me to. Any <laughs> approximation is fine by me. I've always said. And I learned Greek from a Greek, like a modern Greek. Right. And I studied abroad in Athens for a semester and I did Rome for a semester as well. So I learned a lot of words from, and it's different from the anglicized way. Right. So I say things and people are always like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I don't know how you're saying it. Like right. I've never in my life heard agora before. And people are like, what is an agora? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what an agora is. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to be flexible. You won't draw people in, so. Just have to be flexible. Well, thank you for joining me. It'll be a couple of weeks before I can get this out. I have. Thank you. You're a busy guy, and I appreciate your taking time. 